Welcome to IBM Developer. I'm your host, Luke Schantz. In this edition of our Origin Story interview series, I'm bringing you a conversation with Bob Kalka. Bob is the Vice President of IBM Security. Hello, Bob. Thanks for taking the time to connect. Hey, Luke. Thanks for having me. So uh, maybe just to start, uh, start the conversation off, you could give uh, yourself a brief introduction to our listeners and viewers. Sure, sure. So I'm uh, the Global Vice President of uh, Technical Sales for IBM Security. I uh, have been with IBM for about 30 years, and I have been helping to build our cybersecurity business since 1994, so about 26 years. Oh, wow. And I noticed that you gave the closing keynote at IBM's Cloud Native Security Conference. Uh, What was your talk about? Yeah, well, we were talking about what are the issues um, that are going on with cybersecurity right now that are having the most profound impact on clients. Because what happens with cybersecurity is it's really just a form of risk management, right? It's, It's nothing more, nothing less, but it's still pretty intense. And uh, there are a number of trends that are going on in the industry right now, which are um, kind of intersect the reality of how people work or don't work well and protecting their businesses. And so we have a lot of insights there. And we have, of course, a lot of, uh, as we like to say, wisdom and horsepower for helping clients uh, uh, address those problems. That's interesting. And uh maybe we could dig a little deeper into that because what I've heard about security is it's like, if you're a developer, you, you want to execute, right? And if it's not working and something's stopping you, you're just going to start disabling things. So you have to deal with the cultural reality of how do people actually work versus like some harsh letter of the law that is impractical for people's workflow. Well, well, and, and, and ironically, uh, you said that very well. It sounds like a setup because I spent 26 years in cybersecurity, and my first four years before that with IBM was as an assembler developer. And so I was an assembler coder guy um, into the weeds. And to be honest with you, when I started with IBM you know, 30 years ago, I thought that's what I was going to do for 30 years was write assembler code. Wow. Well, and it's, I imagine that's such an interesting perspective, too, to, to, to know from the low level and then through so many layers now. And I guess where I would want to parlay this, and again, this probably sounds like another setup, but with this hybrid multi-cloud world we live in, the attack surface has become just immense. It's everywhere. So how is that shaping IBM's view on security now? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it's, it's not just shaping our view on it. It's shaping the entire industry's view on it. Up until about, you know, three, four years ago when hybrid multi-cloud became plausible and, and actually real. Um, whenever you talked about security with anyone, uh, you'd always have a conversation about protecting the perimeter of the organization. And until three or four years ago, the conversation always was a discussion around the network. So you were protecting the network perimeter. And so what hybrid multi-cloud has done essentially to the attack surface, to your point, is it's changed the attack service from the network to anywhere and everywhere your sensitive data is. So, and when you say those words to a client these days and say, look, uh, your attack surface is now anywhere and everywhere your sensitive data is all over the hybrid cloud world, right? then they just freeze because they realize 
how much harder it is to do that. Um, I just saw a study, for example, that said only 7% of companies are confident they know where all their sensitive data is in a hybrid multi-cloud world. Think about that for a minute. Only 7% know, are confident they know where it all is. And if you can't see it, you can't secure it, to quote Emma Smith, a friend of mine who's the uh, chief information security officer for Vodafone. So that's the reality. It's anywhere and everywhere the sensitive data is, and few people know where all of it is. So how do you know it's secure? And by the way, that's just to know it's there. That's not, the, that's not are you doing well in locking it down. So you see the problem that people have today. Yeah. And I mean, not a week goes by that we don't hear about some data breach and some sort of issue these days and major companies that, again, I'm sure are doing, you know, a great job 99% of the time. Yeah, well, you're hitting a key point. So, um, you know, I've been doing this 26 years. I've flown, you know, over 10 million air miles with American Airlines, literally uh, meeting with clients on cybersecurity. So, you know, I've spent until this COVID year, you know, I've spent an average of 120 days on the road for the last 26 years meeting with clients on cybersecurity stuff. And um, so I've met some of the best of the best of uh, chief information security officers, chief security officers and their teams who really do it to an amazing degree. And I'm not going to mention names for obvious reasons here, but probably the one that I would say is the one that I've been blown away by the most in terms of their discipline, the depth of their program, the insight that they have into the problems they have. Just amazing company. And a couple of months ago, they had a breach because the team that was pushing workloads out to the cloud didn't realize that when you shift your workload to the cloud, just because of their security capabilities in the cloud, they assume the cloud service provider would configure them, which of course they don't. They just give you facilities to configure. And so this company that runs this stuff so well got breached even because you're right for the 99%, they do it really well, but there was one human being who didn't realize how to properly configure security in the cloud led to a big breach for them. And that shows you how on edge, right? This is, we're all going there. We're all going hybrid multi-cloud for all the right reasons, right? But it's making sure that clients have the wisdom and the horsepower to be able to properly secure the workloads in the cloud is huge. So does that, these more modern workflows moving forward, does that tie into what we're doing with Kubernetes and OpenShift and the sense that it creates a sort of a safe space where the security, there's a known management structure around it and the developer can just focus on the code versus, because I remember my startup days, it was you know not that long ago, it was just ad hoc. You're spinning up VMs. You're doing all the security. You're you're you know doing it. However, you just figure out how to do it. Whereas that, like you're saying, it's 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 a lot of responsibility to put on a, a developer where they can become a weak link. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, the beauty of of you know OpenShift and you know containers and Kubernetes, but especially OpenShift, of course, the Red Hat version, um, it is that the Red Hat team. And our team, right, it's all part of us now, um, are just brilliant in terms of our understanding of what you need to do across that multi-layer cake, right, of, of the cloud platform, of how do you do security within that? How do you make sure that the configuration settings, which is the first thing you end up talking about, 
are proper for security and making sure that the security you're doing in your shop matches the security you're doing out in the cloud and for the DevOps teams, right, for the developers, that you can do what's called DevSecOps, right, security operations within the DevOps tool chain, um, that you do it properly. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of ignorance in the industry today of how to do that well, because it's so new to so many security people. So, you know, the fact that here at IBM, I mean, we have hired some incredible resources from um, outside, uh, who have done DevSecOps many times at various clients. And if you look at our view, our point of view and our process and, and our capabilities for DevSecOps, um, it's really stunning. Um, and, and as I keep saying, right, I mean, I've, I've found years ago that the real key to cybersecurity for clients is making sure they have the wisdom to know what to do well and then the horsepower to do it well. And that's one of the reasons that we're so uniquely well positioned is that we bring them both. So I think our listeners now have a pretty good idea of uh, where you're coming from and, and what you're working on, uh, you know, in the sort of contemporary sense. But for the origin story portion of our interview, so for some people, you know, that the initial impetus was maybe just math class or the ham radio or so for you, what was the impetus? If we go back to the you know adolescence or childhood, what, what started you on this path and then take us on the journey uh, to, to, you know, present day? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm growing up when I hit my early teens, uh, I decided I was going to be a rock star. So I learned to play guitar, uh, which I still do. I live in Austin, Texas, playing four bands. I play out every weekend pre-COVID, um, you know, and, and I, so I started playing clubs uh, in New York when I was 16. Um, did it all the time, said, boy, this is fun. But sometime around 16 or 17, I realized that uh, you don't make a whole lot of money <laughs> being a musician. And um, I was always uh, smart. Um, I didn't always apply it when I was a kid, but I was, I was smart. And I was really into math. And uh, a Commodore came out with the uh, VIC-20 and the 64, for those of you uh, uh, who are old enough to uh, see those. And uh, so I got a little Commodore VIC-20 with money from my paper route. <laughs> and I was working, or no, grocery store job, that was it. And I started playing, and I did my first basic program on a Commodore VIC-20. And um, now don't judge old people, right, because uh, the VIC-20 was the cheap one. The 64 was the expensive one. Um, I wrote my first basic program and wrote a game and I said, oh my gosh, I want to do this. And so I wanted to be, you know, a rock star and I want to do computers. And so I can, I could still remember the moment when I was, uh, 18 years old, when I said, you know, you really got to make a decision and whether you're going to be a rock star or a computer guy. And, um, I, you know, at least was intelligent enough to realize that uh, computers pays for a music habit a heck of a lot better than music pays for a computer habit. So I decided to go to school for computer science and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Well, I think you probably made the, the right choice because, uh, and I've struggled with the, the, you know, similar, similar struggles in my own life where it's like, you know, and sometimes you make that choice. Like I was actually, I'll probably cut this part out of the interview, but just to mention my family, manufactured entertainment lighting growing up. So my father, yes. So my father, um, his family actually, his like great uncle made Skinner boxes 
for mm-hmm. and and so my father learned electronics there and then my father you know loved lighting and music and stuff so he started making um lighting control boards and they through the 80s right before it went dmx they had like a big amx business him and his partner ended up having the falling out right around the switch to dmx but they were doing like bruce springsteen and whitney houston and asia and like these big touring rigs and stuff so i got to like witness all of this then later he became wholesale um entertainment lighting salesman and that that's where i got my start doing fax marketing for his business as like a teenager. So I was using like WinFax Pro and like. Oh, I remember that. Well, and, and so what's wild about that, right, is I'm a, you know, I, I go to every concert that I can. And uh, one of my big thrills, I'm a huge Rush fan. And when, uh, when the uh, DVD came out of the documentary about their final tour, I happened to be in Toronto for work the day that they had the world premiere of it. And I not only got to meet Getty Lee's mom there, which was cute, but also Howard Underlighter, who was the basically the light guy and the show guy for Rush for like 30 years. And he's iconic in, in that industry. And so I got to talk to him for a while, and that was a real joy. That is neat. Uh, so the culmination of that, that for me is I ended up going to film school and then working on... Um, media for stage though so I did a lot of small you know operas and fringe fest but then I my peak of this was I did five years for blue man group where I was like the head visual effects and animator so serious yeah yeah oh my gosh I am I I am I'm just the biggest fan of blue man man I've seen it probably a dozen times and it's so creative it's so fun it's so dramatic even when you've seen it Uh, I take clients to see it in Vegas when we're out in Vegas, you know, it's, it's, it's just brilliant. When it was at the Monte Carlo, that's the one I worked on in Vegas. Cause it has been at several places, but I, I worked on the Monte Carlo one and uh, you know, it was fun till it wasn't because there, it was very creative at first, but you were sort of really locked into the one aesthetic. <laughs> so after, uh, yeah. after five years, it was like, okay, it was time to move on. And that's when I went into tech because, you know, animation, visual effects and that industry it's it's very competitive. A lot of it gets offshored and you're hustling, hustling, hustling. You're never building. So it was like moving in. I did a startup, which was also hard. But through that startup, I was using SoftLayer. And yeah. then SoftLayer recruited me after the startup failed right at the time IBM acquisition happened. So it was like this really interesting segue. And uh, tech has been now I'm able to combine the media and the, the technology. That's beautiful. So ironically, uh, my oldest daughter, um, who uh, interned with us uh, twice and now works full-time in tech at uh, Big Fix out in Emeryville, California, um, she went through the same thing I went through, which is she was super smart, really into music, incredible, incredible drummer. And she went to SMU, Southern Methodist University, for a dual degree in music composition and computer science. And in her sophomore year, my wife and I were getting nervous because you could tell that she was really into the music and mildly into the computer science. And I'm like watching, you know, my worst fears come true that she would, you know, choose the other way, even though we would support her regardless of what she did. And it was about halfway through her sophomore year, it clicked for her like it did for me. And, and she realized, right, so she's working in tech, right, and doing music on the side. That's really heartening to hear because I think too often people 
uh, especially uh, I hear from students that I might be out mentoring or, or meeting at meetups, they, they get really worked up, like they have to make some big decision and it's very binary, but it, it's really refreshing to hear that you, you, can, you, you can live this life that is a balance and you can feed these different aspects of your, your interest and creativity. Well, well, it, and I'm telling you what, I mean, I've been here, you know, 30 years, as I said, and I am still learning stuff by applying creativity. I'll give you an example. So when I started working with uh, clients on cyber, um, I was going at night after writing assembler code all day um, and then convert and moving into cybersecurity. Um, I was going for an MBA at night. Um, over several years at Syracuse because I was living in Endicott, New York at the time. And um, I started realizing that I was getting confused by the decisions clients were making on cybersecurity. It just didn't seem to make sense. And I wanted to figure it out. And I found a program within the MBA program at Syracuse on small group psychology. So I actually have a master's degree in small group psychology Whereas I have a computer science undergrad, which is a bizarre combination, but let's be clear. Um, I use that small group psychology degree every single day, practically in every interaction I have with clients right on this stuff, because what happens is it, 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 this is kind of maybe as far off the reservation as I'll get with you here, but in individual psychology, it's, it's a very basic fact, right? That was when you're around someone often, uh, who's always telling you what you're doing wrong, you naturally start to push back from that person, right? Like, ah, you kind of creep me out. You make me feel bad all the time and stuff. Well, from a group psychology point of view, what is the cybersecurity team? They're the people telling you all the time what you're doing wrong. And so the same dynamic exists. And I've not only studied it for four years, but I still research from time to time with Dr. Gary Gemmel, my professor from Syracuse, who's now retired, but still teaches from time to time. And that's exactly what's happening. The reason why so many companies do so poorly in cybersecurity is that psychologically people don't want to hang out with them because they're always telling them what they're doing wrong. And by the way, the development community is probably the most egregious offenders there, right? So there's a natural built-in aversion to working with each other that people don't necessarily see. So when we bring our wisdom and horsepower to bear to help them do that, you're not only providing a technical solution, you're actually cutting through a almost universal group psychology issue. That's really fascinating. And yeah, and uh, I, I did an interview last week with uh, Rosalind Radcliffe from the IBM Z who does DevSecOps. And when I was asking her about it, one of the things she said, she was like, DevOps is culture. And, and she obviously didn't mention what, what you just said, but it's really clicking for me. And I'm starting to see how, you know, especially in the tech world, we can get so focused on the tech and sometimes, you know, fetishize it, which, you know, I, I'm as guilty of that. But it's really so interesting to hear this insight into that it is really about people and how they work together and building these proper relationships. Yeah, look, when I joined, I mean, literally the day I joined IBM, I told my boss, um, that I wanted to write assembler code for 30 years. That's what I told them, by the way. I didn't realize I'd work beyond 30 years here. I still got quite a bit of runway left. Um, but I said, I want to write assembler code for 30 years. Lock me away behind a door. Let me write code. I love doing it. I don't really like talking to people a whole lot. You wouldn't know that now. But back then, that's how I looked at you know my life and myself. 
and stick a check under the door after 30 years. I literally told them that that's what I wanted to do. Little did I know that I would end up going from that to basically five different careers in IBM, including for the last two decades, being on the road with clients almost the entire time. Well, that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you next was because from the outside, I think that the enterprise can be a bit of a, a black box to folks, right? Especially IBM, which is, you know, mainly a business to business company. So uh, part of what we want to do in this series too is, is tell that story of what is it like, what is a career path like inside the enterprise? So from that assembler point, take us on a quick little journey of what were those five, five different jobs you've had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and believe me, I look back on it and I go, bizarre. Um, But the cool thing is, it was bizarre to me because of my perspective, which I just shared with you coming in. But now I look back on it and it's like running water. It was the most natural thing ever. I always, what happened was I was sitting there writing code, loved writing code. And I just started noticing that when my heart came most alive, was when I was talking to clients that were using the code I had written. And I said to my boss, I said, I really love talking you know, to clients about my stuff. And he said, well, would you like to run the beta test program for the product? Not you know, keep writing your code, but also run the beta test program, field test program, I think he called it. And I'm like, yeah, so it's like, bring it to me. And so I started working with a couple of dozen clients and I just I thought, oh, my gosh, it's the greatest thing ever. And so one of the clients wanted me to come visit them and see the stuff in action. And I said, wow, IBM is going to pay for me to go meet with a client. That was like, cool. So uh, it, it's so sad. But it, it's, you know, my first trip ever, which, you know, I romanticized it. I'm like, wow, I'm going on a business trip to meet with a client um, as a developer. And it was uh, Owens Corning Fiberglass in Toledo, Ohio. And there was a guy named Mike Danley. I still remember the guy and everything. We're still friends on the LinkedIn and stuff. And I was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. I was so excited to be working with clients. So I came back from that trip and I said, hey, how do I do more of this? I really want to do this. And I really enjoy traveling. And wow, that was fun. Even though if you know Toledo, Ohio, it's not exactly a garden spot. But I was like, wow, this is awesome, dude. So uh, my boss said, well, look, the, the best way if you want to go travel and meet with clients often, and this is what he said. He said, either get into marketing or learn how to speak. Because if you can speak, you can go anywhere. Uh, if you join marketing, you're going to go lots of places. So after four years of writing code, I went into marketing, into product marketing for a year and traveled a bunch, but it just wasn't for me. So my second career move, my second career in IBM was product marketing. It lasted a year. It was fun, sort of, but it wasn't technical enough for me. I'm a technical guy. I wanted to be more hands-on and meeting with clients. In some product marketing, technical marketing jobs, you can do that, but the one I was in wasn't. So then a year later, I went into offering management, product management, we call it the time, because I thought, well, I want to run a product for security um, and go out and meet with clients and build what I hear them telling me they want. So I did product management um, for about six or seven years, and I ended up being the head of product management for all of security in the late 1990s. Um, and, and so that was great. 
center of the universe job of running the products and working with the development teams and everything. So, and this is, uh, this is, I, I hit the offering management job, product management job six years after I started. So I went assembler coder, product marketing for a year, and then offering management, fell in love with that. Did that for six or seven years. I always uh, kind of followed my passion into the career moves. The first one was I want to get out there with people more and then, but I want to do it in a technical way. That's what led to offering management. So the fourth career was I got tired of building products that didn't seem like the sellers could sell. So I was very frustrated that I thought we were building great products. Um, the problem was it didn't seem like people were selling them that much. And of course, that's not a very good thing for a career. So I went to sales enablement for six or seven years. I said, well, I want to own training the sellers on selling this stuff that we're producing. And I did that for six, or seven years and loved that. And that's when I traveled. I mean, I was on the road, you know, 120, 150 days a year um, and loved every minute of it. And then got frustrated that despite the training, they still weren't executing well. So that's why I moved. Um, then after about six or seven years of sales enablement, I moved into sales, into what was called our security tiger team, which is very technical, but salesy people. And then that migrated into um, technical sales. So essentially my five careers were assembler coder, product marketing for a year, offering management, sales enablement, and then sales and technical sales. And all of it was very organic. It was very natural and, and it was all really fun. That's fascinating journey. And something that about this uh, that, that really pops into my mind or that I notice is the, the empathy throughout the process. It's like understanding and, and you know, again, back to the, the people side of it. It's like, you know, you understand what you did and then you start to see, you know, how relating to others. And then again, you're able and, and I imagine it compounded as you go through every step, you're bringing with you on the journey, the understanding of what it is like to be in these different roles. There's, look, there's, there's, I mentor a lot of our younger reps and stuff and growing in self-awareness is by far the X factor in all of this. I'll give you a quick story. So <clears throat> I was writing this code. I was about to move to product marketing and I was asked to go speak. And, and I was a horrible speaker. If I had a guitar in front of me, I could do anything. But if you asked me to speak about something for work, I froze, right? I just wasn't comfortable doing it. I was terrified of it, as, as a lot of people are. And I was asked to go speak about my code I was writing right at the end of my uh, developer career um, at a conference in Brussels, Belgium. I had never been overseas before. You know, it was called mom and dad. Wow, they're sending me to Brussels to speak, you know, at this uh, big conference with 300 clients. And I went and I spoke about my software. So even though I wasn't a good speaker technique wise, I knew my stuff and the passion came through. So I got really high ratings for that. And I was on top of the world. I'm like, ooh, I can do this. Well, literally like 10 minutes after my session is done, the organizers of the conference walk up to me and say, Bob, we got a little problem we think we can, you can help us with. Um, you just did a great job on your presentation. The American executive who's flying over to close out this entire conference on the future of client-server computing can't make it. And we feel like we need a, a non-European speaker. So would you like to do the closing keynote of this conference? 
Now, you want to talk about lack of self-awareness combined with high ego? A disastrous combination, right? <laughs> I mean, high ego, like big ego and lack of self-awareness is a horrible combination. And, and I, I don't think I need to say much more about that. So I said, of course, yes. You know, call home to mom and dad. I'm closing. I'm doing the closing keynote of this major conference. So fast forward, end of the conference. I get up in this beautiful room, right? You've got a background in lighting and stuff. It's this gorgeous conference room at the old La Hoop location in, in Belgium. And uh, it lights down except for on the stage, you know, 300 executives from around European clients sitting there. And I'm up there to talk about the future of client server computing as a closing keynote, 45 minute slot. And I knew nothing about the topic, nothing. So I get up there and I'm a little nervous, right? Because I'm going, whoa, these people are staring at me and I'm, I got the spotlight on me and everything. And so I turned around and started reading slides, which obviously is a go out of business strategy. I start reading the slides and I'm not kidding, 45 seconds into it, a client in the front row with the way the lighting was, I could only three, see the first three rows. There was probably about 20, 25 rows in the room. Client asked a question that was a layup question. It was an easy, easy question, but I knew I didn't know the answer. So I committed one of the cardinal rules of speaking, which is I made up an answer. And I made it up from a perspective of ignorance, too. I didn't know what I was talking about. And by this point, maybe a minute and a half into this closing keynote, I see every head that I can see in the first three rows after my answer going, And I just froze because I realized I was bombing. As I like to say, I bombed in Brussels. Um, and, and I sat there for the remaining, you know, 43 and a half minutes, turned to the slides reading them. It was the worst experience of my life before, you know, before or since. And afterwards, the ratings for that session were just so horrible compared to every other session, including my techie session. It was one of those seminal moments of either I'm never getting up to speak again for work or I'm going to take this horrific experience and figure it out. Right. And so I obviously chose the latter and I started uh, taking some training for speaking and then I started throwing myself more into situations where I could speak on something I knew what I was talking about and build those skills. And, and now I, I you know, do that incessantly all the time. But it was based on that horrific bombing in Brussels that led to being able to do this as a you know, career capability you know, as around, around my core job. Wow. It's, yeah, and I imagine if uh, someone could take that situation and go the other way and, and retreat, but it's, it, uh, and yeah, that, that's a great story. And it's, let me ask you this, like how was, was that realization right then or was it the kind of thing that you lost a few sleepless nights and you kind of, it, it took a little while to process or was it pretty immediate that you were like, oh man, you, you, that well, reality it check. Was, it was as it was happening. It was as it was happening. <laughs> I'm literally, this, this is my second big pitch of my life. The first one went well with a bunch of, you know, techies. Now I'm with these executives. I'm bombing. I knew I was bombing. 
And I'm going, I could just walk off this stage and just leave right now. If, if I didn't think I was getting, uh, would get fired for it, I probably would have done it. It was complete abject terror. And so, but once again, right, it was like, nope, I'm going to learn from this, even though it's going to sting for a while. I can talk about it now and I just laugh at it now, but I'm telling you, man, years, right? I was like, nope, that fed a lot of what I did around learning to speak because I was like, I'm never going to do that again. Well, that is that was a a great story. And it's it's great that you share it, too, because hopefully, especially through things like this series, Hopefully we can learn from experiences like that and not have to maybe relive the, the exact same experience ourselves. So let me ask you this. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have? Or is there any sort of closing thoughts or recommendations you have around, uh, especially around security and, and advice for our listeners? Yeah, well, I mean, for, for our listeners, the bottom line is security is not the security team's job alone. Security is everybody's job. I know that sounds a little pie in the sky, but it's absolutely true. And the truth is the customers who do cyber best, the development teams who do cyber best are the ones who go, I may not be in the security function, but I realize that if my, (laughs) just like I didn't know how to speak in Brussels, um, is that if I don't know how to do security, Right. If I don't know what DevSecOps is and what should be done is at least meets minimum inside my stuff and we're breached, I can't just point the finger at security team and say, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Right. It's that it's all of ours. And what we've learned from the customers who do cyber the best is where the executives across the board, not just in cybersecurity, all realize that security is their job too. Why do you think our cyber range? Uh, pre-COVID um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts that we built was so successful, we built another one on an 18-wheeler that travels all over Europe. The reason we did that is that the real outcome of client visits to our cyber range is that you have the security team and the executives around the security team, CIO, COO, chief risk officer, et cetera, CEO, sometimes board member, sometimes, when they go through our exercises in our cyber range, and I've been in there at least three dozen times with clients, at the end of the day, they all stand to leave. They look at the security person and you see it in their eyes. They go, my goodness gracious, that was intense. This is my job as much as yours. And they feel it, you know, intrinsically, they feel it. And that's a success because then when they go back into their offices, then they don't just show up once a year for a security briefing and pretend they're paying attention and go, yeah, okay, we are collaborating. They actually work with each other. Their hearts are turned on. So that's another thing, right, to take out of this is that it's really important to not only grow your skills individually, but also grow your self-awareness because it allows you to be far more effective in your job. It allows you to use a term you used. It allows you to be far more empathetic in how you deal with people. And, you know, one of the cardinal rules of life is that if someone thinks you at least somewhat understand where they're coming from, they're going to be a lot more collaborative with you. Whereas if you're super smart and you've got high ambition and you're just like, you know, deep down, it's get out of my way. I'm coming through, folks. 
you know, you may be individually successful for a while, um, but over time it'll get stunted because the continual career path comes from people who can combine strong technical skill combined with growing empathy for others, which you only get through growing self-awareness. That's really interesting. And it, it totally resonates with, uh, you know, these notions I've been hearing. I think there's a cliche. It's like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And yeah. yeah, and this is, I've heard too that, you know, while it's, it's popular to think there's some sort of zero sum survival of the fittest, uh, you know, evolutionary thing, the reality, the success of, of, of human beings and civilization really has been about our ability to collaborate and, and work together. Yeah, and, and, and as a word for uh, anyone who's feeling a little pangs based on what you and I just said, that are going, wait a minute, what's, a wrong, what's wrong with being the smartest guy or gal in the room, right? Um, you know, my first day, as I shared with you, my first day at work, um, you know, I said, let me write code for 30 years, put a check under the door after 30 years. But the other thing I said to my boss, just to show this dichotomy of bizarreness that I was when I started my career was I also said I was a band four, I think, junior associate programmer. My other question was, how fast can I get to band 10? <laughs> and my boss looked at me like, dude, seriously. Right. And when I didn't blink, he said, OK, I'll bite. Well, if you do really well and you're on the right projects and you have a whole lot of luck, then maybe 10 years. And I was so driven back then. I did it in seven. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like super driven. But when I got to that point, right, very early in my career as a, as a band 10, as a very young person, um, I realized that I did not have the skills to go beyond that because beyond that, right, is in the executive ranks. And so I actually kind of stepped off the ladder for about a couple of years because I realized that I was not self-aware enough to be successful at the next level. I probably could have got to the next level, but I knew I wasn't going to do well. Remember bombing in Brussels? That feeling was coming back that I realized I was getting ahead of my interference in terms of my skills. So I stayed at that level for 10 years before I became a director. And I did it by choice because I realized I wasn't yet prepared to be successful at the next level. So I did the work both on my technical skills as well as on myself to be prepared. So when it came, I was ready. You know, so you take that abject um, uh, ambition and ego and stuff. And at some point you realize that that alone is not going to do it. You may get to where you want to go, but your chance of bombing um, increases considerably. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Bob. This has uh, been fascinating, uh, both technically, but also to hear about this journey. And uh, I've taken notes. I think uh, maybe I'll get to a higher band after <laughs> some self-reflection. That's funny. Great to chat, man. <laughs>